you love to read but struggle to see print? Bookshare is a nonprofit ebook library that makes reading easier for people with low vision or blindness. Members can read in ways that work for them with ebooks in audio, large print, and digital braille. Get unlimited access to over 1 million titles, including New York Times bestsellers, periodicals, upskilling books, and more. Bookshare is free for New York Public Library patrons or U.S. students with a qualifying disability. For more information, visit bookshare.org today. Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening and welcome to Tuesday Topics. I'm Paul Edwards, and I'm happy to say that we have our whole crew back with us this weekend. So um, Mr. Larry Gassman has been uh, doing our streaming. Hello, Mr. Larry. Hello there, Paul. Glad you're with us. And Mr. Rick Morin, who will be uh, doing part of our hand raising, is also here. Rick, we're glad to have you back. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Great to be back. Thank you. Yeah. And Rick, along with uh, our other hand raiser, is uh, both were down in Florida having fun with high winds. So, Marion, it's very good to have you back. Thank you, Paul. It's good to be back. Excellent. And of course, ta-da, we have our co-host, Mr. Brian Charlson. Hey, Brian. Hey there. Hi there. Ho there. It's a yeah. beautiful day in the fall here in New England. Leaf peepers beware. Yeah. It's a nice day here, too. Um, so we, we agreed to try a famous experiment uh, and we'll have to see if it works. If it doesn't, um, we've put down a number of topics that that we will that we will consider talking about. But we thought it would be fun uh, for the first time in in a long while, I think, to see whether our folks who are in our audience uh, want to actually take a stab at suggesting topics they think we should be talking about. So. Uh, do you think that's going to work, Mr. Bryant? <laughs> well, it is a bit of a Fibber McGee's closet, don't you think? It you know, is. You can open the door and things can come tumbling down on your head that you don't ever remember even thinking about. Let yeah, a, but, let the, alone but, but the good news is whenever he opened his closet, something tumbled out. What I'm scared of is we'll open the <laughs> closet nothing and nothing tumble. will happen. Well, you don't have to worry about that. You already have two hands raised. There <laughs> oh, we good. go. As soon as you <laughs> said it, the hands went up. Fibber <laughs> McGee is live and well. That's yeah. so good. <laughs> well, I suppose we, we, we don't need to put things off any longer. We could let people determine our fate, Mr. Bryant. So shall we let shall we let Marion recognize one of those two hands? I think that's a good idea. Miss Marianne, let's do yeah. it. Okay, one second. Sorry, I gotta get back to the panel. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I love okay. your keyboard. Yeah. What's that? Oh, I sorry. love your keyboard. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> In our household, we call it puckada puckada. Okay. Why well, can't just give me one second? There we go. I'm sorry, Elizabeth. Um, can unmute 
Hi there. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Okay. okay. This is not something that we could go into this time, but for a future call, it may be good to talk about how to set up more ACB community Zoom calls dealing with the specifics of getting employed, particularly for younger people who have very little experience in the workforce. And the way people get employed these days is so different from the way that many of us speaking were employed. Mm-hmm. But my concern yep. is there's a low number of employment there are not many people being employed, apparently, and the people in their 20s don't seem to have enough models of how people get work, um, get jobs in this day and age. So, Elizabeth, I hope that you'll consider um, joining us on November 15th when uh, I can now announce uh, we will actually be having members of ACB's Employment Committee join us to talk about what they're doing and also presumably to get some suggestions from folks like you about some things that they might be able to do. I will absolutely be on that call for sure. And I will spread the word all over the place. And and you know how loud I am, Paul. I do know how loud you are, Miss <laughs> really, Always. You know, it's really <laughs> awful. My my goals are really admirable, but I just I need social training and I'm so old. <laughs> think you're just fine, Miss Allworth. I think yeah, you are. But and and, and on the fifth, topic, yeah, and 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 by all means, spread the word. I think it's going to be a really cool call. I've talked with um, both of the co-chairs of the employment committee now, and and they're looking forward to being with Who us. Are the co-chairs? Um, there is a, a lady from Colorado uh, named Brooke, and Peter Alchul from uh, Missouri. Okay, I'm going to write you. I have a couple of things to write you about, so expect emails as soon as I get my thoughts clarified. So I'll write about that and, and also about some other things that you and I discussed earlier. Good. Excellent. And, uh, and don't forget Brian McDonald's on the Braille bus. <laughs> um, so Elizabeth, Elizabeth runs, um, runs uh, uh, Braille rooms uh, on a couple of, uh, community calls every week so we are extremely pleased to have her join us and and also really overjoyed with all the work she's doing uh to help uh folks to acquire a better ability to to handle braille so thank you for what you do miss elizabeth miss marianne janine hi how are you hey, hey. we we are up to absolutely no good. I hope you are too. Um, well, I try to be good. I try to be good. Um, <laughs> I'm really excited that Ted is coming. I was so lucky and got to meet him this weekend as well. It was wonderful. Yep. <laughs> um, and I got a Braille bracelet. And um, yeah, I love it. It has the whole alphabet on it. So I've been touching it a lot and practicing Braille and Paul helped me with that this weekend. So um, my, I, I have a topic for, you know, I know that we're ACB and we are a great community and we want to include everyone. I think maybe, I don't know if you've done this on Tuesday Topics because 
Yeah. But I think maybe having a, a group, um, a session for our sighted partners and our sighted friends, maybe to come and have them talk about, you know, their issues with helping us or being there for us or how they can help us better and, or what we want from them. Uh, like maybe have like, have sighted people come ask, or you can talk about what we need or, you know, just something like that. Like, a for the sighted people in our life that might have questions that they don't want to ask us, but they might want to ask someone else. I think, um, I, I flip side I think of the coin. Yeah. I think that's an interesting idea. I, I, I don't know how easy it's going to be to get to persuade people to do that. Um, mm. But we can sure try. Okay. And I'm really excited for tonight's topic. My president made me come. So we'll, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. well, and, and she's probably going to come later on too. So, and if she doesn't, she said I'm here. So yeah. <laughs> like, okay. Nice. okay. Yeah, we'll, we, we will get to, we, we will certainly get to that topic. I promise. Okay. Awesome. Um, yep. Janine is part of one of these statewide affiliates um, that we talked about in, in our write-up as one of the topics we might talk about, whether statewide sure. affiliates are a good idea. So, uh, any more hands? Yep. Melody? Ah. Hello. It's been a few weeks, I think. I'm so sorry about that. Um, and I know you had specifically asked me, Paul, to email some ideas and I'm really progressive so it's been tough and just tired at certain times um I have a few and I want to try to be quick and that's one of the problems why I speak so quickly um I would love to have a topic you were discussing uh, research into getting sight back and things and what our families would have done yep. and how far they would have gone so I want to know how different people's experiences how what our families would have done to to have us get vision back or how what we were told they would have done how they uh -huh. handled at any point during the loss and also yeah. if there are additional things going on additional disabilities if whether they came before the loss of sight afterwards where our families kind of oh my goodness not more which is kind of what mine have done also um as far as the employment realm different topics i know terry, terry pachico wanted to do this unconventional um, careers like law enforcement or medical, you know, the field or environmental science, things like that, and who we have cared for. If any of us have actually done something to save someone's life that is critical, I don't just mean, you know, on an emergency line, but anything that someone has actually done to help someone or bring them back. Yeah. So life saving stuff. That's interesting. Um, but, but, you know, just just to, to say this to everybody who's out there, we're not necessarily just interested in your suggesting topics that we can do in the future, but this is your chance to talk about something that you that you are interested in sharing about and then getting some feedback from us. So it's not not just suggesting topics. So those are good ones, Miss Melody. Is there anything you would like to sound off on? I, I feel as if since 2004, right after I had to drop out of college from gaining three scholarships so quickly, being valedictorian, and then, you know, the situation not allowing it, I have experience. I, don't, I feel like as, as if I've been working for advocacy organizations 
without just being on payroll in this situation. I know how to inject an IV. I know how to, you know, check vitals and take a pulse manually. I I tutored an older veteran, you know, Braille and basic independent living skills and really can't prove it now. So it's kind of, I knew that I would have been used in things like that. And my disabilities have been used to control me, which there's a topic in itself. How many, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) that that would be a, a good one. Probably run over a few days so it, it's so you know i've had two prior certifications and things and was handpicked for some jobs knowing very well that i couldn't so right where i am so that's kind of i would love to speak personally with someone on the employment committee about that and right now you know my basic needs are not met and i cannot so it's it's yeah. kind of one of those frustrating i had to let that go i would have gone for a medical degree and it hurts <laughs> uh, i gotcha well i think I think those are those are all topics that are that are certainly worth more consideration. I think we will. Um, very good. Thank you, Miss Melody. Matthew oh. has his hand raised. Yep. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Hi. Hey, Matthew. Uh, hi. Um, I I just wanted to let you guys know I am the vice president of the Mittens Fawn chapter, and Marsha Moses Moses had emailed us saying that you're going to be on the call tonight. And I was looking at the topics for tonight, the possible topic. And it's something to do with, um, you know, phone chapters. And being that Mittens is a phone chapter, if you guys wanted me to say anything about that, the experience over saying being in person, I don't mind saying something about that. Now, <clears throat> Mittens is the Michigan statewide chapter, right? No, um, the MCBVI is a Michigan statewide chapter. Right. The Mittens is kind of like VIP. It's just a smaller chapter. It's basically for people who who um, don't have their own chapter in their areas or want to don't want to join their local one, so they just want to do like a phone chapter type thing. Yeah, you're you're. I think we're saying the same thing. Um, so, but but it's uh, it's open to members all over Michigan. Yeah. Michigan and other places like we have somebody from we have two people from Indiana here too. Nice. So it's not just Michigan; it's other areas also. Yeah. Well, well, we have. We, I, I know we now have at, at least two folks on. Um, um, is is your is your group growing? Yes, we've actually gotten a couple more people in the last month or so. We're always trying to look for ways to bring more people into the organization because we are still a smaller chapter. There's about, I'd say, maybe thirty people. Maybe a little over thirty people, but we'd like to definitely get some more people to join. Not, not sure that's a small chapter anymore in ACB. Well, <laughs> I, yeah, and as yeah. an affiliate, that's one vote plus, right? Yeah, Almost it is. Two. Yeah, and also I've only been a member of it for like three years, so um, I haven't really dealt with ACB that much. I did in Dallas for a tiny bit back in two thousand one. But I'm looking for also looking for better ways to get tied in with ACB and become more included in the ACB stuff. Nice. All right. Well, we will. We're we're gonna we're gonna definitely talk about this a little bit more. So so hang with us, uh, Matthew, if you would. Sure. No problem. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Yep. Traveling Terry. Traveling Terry. Ooh. You're you are unmuted, Terry. You may speak. Hi, how's everyone doing this evening? This is Terry. I am the proud president of 
Florida.com, Florida Council of the Blind, which is chapter of at-large members. And I am excited to have heard Janine's voice. She is my secretary. And we help cover the entire state of Florida because we have 67 counties and only 22 affiliates. And we've got over 2 million people that are legally blind in Florida. So we are excited for this brand new chapter. We've only been around for a little bit over 12 months and we are just growing every day. And I think the most important thing is, is as we adventure into this world of at-large members, is to make sure that we collaborate and create a symbolic relationships with our affiliates that do meet in person. But there are some people that just physically can't leave their homes. And that's where we fulfill the need of being part of this great neighborhood that we have built. So how I'm many excited. members do you, how many members do you now have, Terry? Well, um that's 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 a question. Um, we have primary members are about 15, um, but we have over 60 names that we're working through. So yeah. we're really excited. And every day, you know, I get a phone call from um, Janine or Peggy Carpenter, who's our vice president, and John um, saying, hey, we got another person. And, and so if anybody wants to find out or reach any of the executives, just email us at com. C-A-L-M-F-C-B at gmail.com. And we'll be glad to help and, you know, collaborate with anyone and create a symbolic relationship. Um, you know, I live right next door to Orange County, so I have Greater Orlando as like my neighbors. But to get across there, there's so much I have to do. Mm -hmm. It'd be easier for me to just to buy a helicopter. And we're not talking about a Tom, you know, I can't get a my golf cart to drive by itself. How I'm going to get a helicopter to fly by itself? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, just just to clarify something that you talked about, Florida is one of the the only state I think that has what are called primary and secondary memberships, and um, and essentially uh, only 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 primary members of a chapter are actually able to be counted. Um, for voting purposes, even though you may have a pile more members. So really... That is correct. Yeah, your primary right. and secondary members together is what is what we would probably count. So do you have 60 people who've actually joined COM? Um, that is an excellent question that we are working through. As you heard, we had a little storm, and we're in that transition from last year's membership to renewal period. So we're going through that. I'll let you know November. <laughs> Very we have, good. Yeah, but I would say we definitely have um, a lot more than we did last year, and we're growing every day. Now, since we're talking about this topic, you guys do a, a number of different things with COM. Why don't you talk to us about some of the activities that you do every month? Oh, well, thank you very much. So we have the traditional monthly business meeting, um, but we have a very creative team and we want to focus on working on our work to do for our business in our committee meetings. So we actually hold a 30 minute business meeting 
and then we invite a speaker. So the whole meeting is an hour, but the business side is only 30 minutes. So the committees bring everything that we need to vote on and discuss very shortly to our monthly business meeting. And it's the first Monday of every month at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And then we have our fundraiser committee meeting is on our first Saturday of the month. And then Sunday, the first Sunday of the month, we have our Sunday fun day. And for those that want to eat Sundays during the meeting, you can. Um, <laughs> um, so that's a great, it's an open call. And Janine is um, great on having some kind of game for us to play. And then on the third Wednesday of every month, I am really excited. I have what's called the Calm President Listening Lounge where I invite all presidents of any affiliate, any state, anywhere to come and listen to get the pulse of what's going on in our community from our members. So it's where I sit back and yes, I actually be quiet and listen to what's going on out there. And then the then that Thursday is our ACE, which is our Advocacy Accessibility Committee. And then we start all over again, but we are starting a book club, but it's not a traditional book club. It's a meeting where you come and talk about the book you're reading to inspire one another of a new writer or a new topic or something like that. So we're always doing new things. Cool. Yeah. Um, now, why did uh, geographic, geographic, lack of proximity to other places is the primary reason why you set up calm or were there other reasons no it pretty much was just geographic as we know the one word that every um legally blind person has is transportation and crossing county lines and in florida we have 67 counties and we only have 22 affiliates and our state membership is 600, you know, over, what is it, 650? And believe it or not, we have over 2 million people in Florida that through the Division of Blind Services say is qualified to be legally blind. And it is a challenge for us to get together. Um, Pinellas County is always doing wonderful things that I'd like to participate in, but, you know, that is... Um, Farther than my walking distance. <laughs> it, yeah, right. And Zoom, we have learned what Zoom can do. I mean, look at this call right now. Mom's going to be placed. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Brian, any questions for Miss Terry? Sure. Here's a few. One <laughs> is have, have the people that are associated with this uh, affiliate at large uh, come from other affiliates they have Meaning, but what yeah what we okay. have earlier we discussed primary and secondary membership so right. here in florida if Oops, say <clears throat> you are a okay. member of pinellas county council of the blind and you can still become a member of calm but your oh. voting delegate count will only be one or the other. So you have to choose which is going to be your primary or your secondary membership. So that's where it's um, we play a little different in Florida just to keep the voting numbers straight and the delegates straight. 
Gotcha. Did that the, help explain everything? Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay. One of the things that we all have to be a little concerned about is the pie is just so big, and you keep cutting it into smaller pieces. Uh, the more things you pile on to it, so to speak. God, that sounded like an advertisement for whipped cream, didn't it? But, uh, <laughs> but now but you have no. me hungry for apple pie. Thanks. There you go. Huh? <laughs> so I'm, I'm always thinking that, um, let's say the blindness community is, is, there's no such thing as an average person, but there are certain percentage that are older, certain percentage that are younger, certain percentage are female, male, um, employed, unemployed. You can go through a whole series of these kinds of things, and people will fit into a collection of them. And there's only so many hours in the day to do things. Now, I, I should say at the beginning that I'm in favor of the idea of uh, virtual chapters. I think that there's some real value in that. We here in Massachusetts, though before I moved here, I thought it was just one giant city. We have two-thirds of our state that are quite rural. And those individuals have struggled over the years to be active members as a result of transportation, uh, but also as a result of uh, a certain level of resentment on the people who live outside of the Boston area where transportation is readily available and those who live outside of that area. So everything gets done, but the con convention happens in Boston, the social activities happen in Boston, that kind of thing. So got to help those people who are out there and really would benefit from associating with a community of blind and visually impaired people. But I also see the value. We had a social event here in Massachusetts the other day, and we had 35 people come together just to have dinner together at a local restaurant. And nice. those mm -hmm. people were craving contact, I don't mean physical, but you know, <laughs> non-electrical contact with other people. Uh, and and I wonder whether the virtual achieves any of that. Well, one of the things that we at COM, um, we need to focus on membership, and we are working with the Division of Blind Services of Florida we're going to be traveling and doing expos in areas that never heard of, never seen another blind or legally low-sighted person and show those hospital, show the businesses and kind of take these events, we're going to call them expos, and travel to the area such as Polk County, um, Hillsborough County, no, Hillsborough's Tampa, I'm sorry, Highland um, Okeechobee to these places where some of them don't even have a hospital. Um, Pittman County, um, Putnam County, they don't have hospitals. They use helicopters to transport you to the local hospitals, but they have clinics and stuff. And we want to do education because we know that there are people there that um, have never been touched. So we're really going to connect and, and take the show on the road and teach people that hey, did you know there's an affiliate over here in Tampa and really encourage um, and get them support and work with the Lions Clubs and all the other exciting social clubs out there and help sponsor 
COM members to get to state conferences. And that's where our fundraising is going to be and our awareness is to help get those that are living in these rural areas um, to be able to participate because there is nothing like the human factor when it comes to convention. Um, I've attended my first state convention and my first national convention this year. And even though some of it was a little bit limited because of someone invited a virus, I didn't invite the virus, someone else did. And, um, but it was, I would never trade it back. Yeah, out of the 10 days that I was there, five of them were in a hotel room. But the human factor of meeting people that were there, I, and that's one thing we're really passionate about and calm is we want to make sure the human factor is there. But we have some members that are physically unable to leave their home due to multiple health conditions. And so that is where we're excited about because in the 60 something years, they were never touched by a, a community like this. So just even being on a phone with someone else is enlightening for them. So Brian, we know that that um, because of COVID, uh, and because of the, the huge expansion of community calls, we've gotten a lot of national at-large members uh, into ACB. Should we be forming a national at-large chapter? Well, again, um, I, I'm always interested in the, when I say politics, I don't mean shenanigans, but the structure of things yeah because in florida you have this two-tiered system of primary affiliate and secondary affiliates um, you don't run in to this one person depends on how many special interest affiliates you're a member of right to figure out how many other votes you have 124 right. each time but still they add up so if you do an at-large chapter it could readily become a chapter that contains two-thirds of the organization as a whole yep. because there won't be a limit on them being a member of their local affiliate and sure. the at-large and 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 suddenly they'd have 25 votes and away we'd go what do you what do you think um terry should we should we have a national at-large chapter well it's a very good discussion that we're having because i understand the fear of having one person have 25 votes. We already have members in our community that are members, well, myself. Um, I'm a member of Diabetics in Action, Calm, and you know, do I have two votes? Oh, and Next Generation, I'm also a member. So that's three places where my delegate vote is heard. But what we do on the national is one member, one vote when we do it electronically. So I'm very new to the organization. Um, I'm also only five years into my site um, loss journey. And learning on how things are done has been a journey for me. And I respect processes as well, coming out from the healthcare field and teaching and developing team resuscitation and quality assurance. I respect processes, but the thing is, is we have to realize that the world around us is ever changing. And one of the things that we need to look at is how to increase our youth, because as a 50 year old 
I am so grateful for what you guys have fought for the last 60 years to achieve for us, you know, with accessibility, with the ADA, but we have to get the youth involved to carry on all that hard work that has already been done. So that's one of the things that COM is working with, with Florida Council of the Blind, is creating young visionaries, or you heard it at our state convention, the electric youth program, because we have to invest in our future as well as keep respect of where we came from. And that's a balancing cool. act. Yeah. yeah. And so, the thing of it is, is, is I think it's important that as we respect our delegate voting process that you can be a, an at-large member and not have a voice. You know, there's no delegates at, at the at-large members, but if we create a national at-large, there would be the structure of having a voice with delegates as we do in Florida. And I think that's the biggest difference I see. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so I, I don't know if, um, Marianne, if we can invite Matthew back in to see if he wants to add in to anything about mittens into this discussion. Okay, hold on. Um, Matthew, is, oh. Matthew can just unmute. He is still able to talk. Matthew, you can just unmute if you'd like to join the discussion. Matthew, you got anything you'd like to add about this whole idea of statewide affiliates and that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, uh, I think that would definitely be a, a good idea. Um, a lot more voices would be heard. Um, I, I do understand about the growing number of votes being part of different uh, affiliates. But, you know, like I said, um, it's always good to get more input from more people. Should, so should we create should we create an organization called, um, I know, the, the what would we call it? The, the community of at-large statewide chapters? Something close to that. Um, or um, states at large or something like that, you know? Yeah. As long as it's not members at large, I'm trying to become smaller, not wider. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think <clears throat> I think it's uh, it, it, it's interesting to try to imagine how we're going to grow. I mean, clearly, um, Michigan and Florida are two examples, but I think there are other states that are that are beginning to have at large chapters. Pennsylvania pretty, has one. Yeah, I think Texas has one. Um, I'm, I think Washington is getting one if they don't have one. Um, do either of you guys know of other states that have them? You've named all the ones that I am aware of. I know but, that um, they were trying to do Iowa, um, Wyoming, and right. another one they were trying to do those three states. Woohoo! Yeah, Thanks, Janine. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's also um, I think there's also um, one in Georgia. Yeah, in so fact, I'm sure I, there is. Go ahead. Jenny. I had a question on this. So, uh, you know, because uh, I know that you are familiar with Florida and I know there's other states here as well. So I was thinking and and 
Mr. Charleston might have a thought on this, uh, Brian. So Mm -hmm. in Florida, when you become a member of a chapter, you're a member of the chapter, you're a member of the state affiliate, and then you're a member of ACB. So if you become a member of an at-large chapter, such as Florida or Texas or Michigan or or Hawaii, you know, wherever, would then you automatically be member of the state's at-large chapter? Would that be your parent? Or would you have to join that separately for that infrastructure? That's another thought to have because that's kind of the big one. Right. If you if you join the at large chapter, then you're going to be a member of the state affiliate as well. But if if you because presumably, Com is is charging dues, right? Yes. Yeah. I was I was talking about the national level of the app, uh, like the membership at large chapter that you were speaking about earlier. Oh, right. Should we have a nationwide at large chapter? So, like. And and what will we call it? Like states of that, like so that that was. Just is my there thought. is like, there any difference between a nationwide at large chapter and ACB? Well, I think uh, a very great question so. is is if somebody just wants to be a member of at large and not be affiliated on their state level as a choice, but yeah. instead of trying to fit into the cookie pattern that we have now. And some people are really probably not going to vote for me for anything any further when I say this. But instead of adjusting what we currently do is look at what the process we're doing and saying, do we still need the delegate vote? I mean, we needed the delegate vote because of lack of transportation and the lack of being able to get to cast that vote. Well, now we've overcome that. We have the, you know, proven in the last two years of, one member, one vote. The question is, is do we still need that delegate vote? And then what Janine is saying, I feel is with Florida's primary and secondary is is we we charge $12 to be a primary. So you, some money stays in calm, some go to Florida Council of the Blind, and then some goes to ACB. But when you're a secondary member, all the money stays in calm because the fees have already been paid for the state and for national for you. So the question that Janine is asking is, is do we need to do that for but the entire, if we create still, this national? You still charge those folks 12 bucks though, right? I think it's 10. Is it 10, Janine? Uh, no, it's 12 either way, but we oh. could. Okay. We could discuss that at our next <laughs> Well, things have changed so much for us and mm-hmm. we're still we're still in the process of solidifying everything and getting everything cleared up. And the important thing is is we don't we want to make sure the funds that we are collected are used 100% to meet the clear expectations of what you get with the membership. So if you're a primary member and you pay the $12 Com will pay your Florida Council of the Blind and pay Com to pay ACB national membership and make sure you get the benefits of all three. When you're a secondary, we don't need to pay Florida Council of the Blind to pay ACB. So all that money stays in the Com um, bucket to be able to do Com expos and get people to go to. I don't know if I don't know if Florida Council of the Blind would agree with that because. 
Oh no! All of the other special interest affiliates pay um, pay state dues for all their members, whether they're primary or secondary. Well, I guess we have a. Um, when we clarified that, um, my understanding is, and I don't have um, my other executive board members here, but we have been discussing very closely about that because being a very young. Um, affiliate <laughs> um, finances, you know, once you, you got to build the relationships be, to get the money in. So we are in the process of doing that And Florida Council of Blind have been wonderful and waived our fee for the first year and they paid our members for their ACB. Um, so we are currently establishing new processes for maybe so. I mean, yeah. I, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with it. It's just that it's not the way it's done for any other affiliate. Right. Well, that's so an the, opportunity of clarification. Oh, go ahead, Janine. I'm sorry. And the other affiliates, because I'm a member of another affiliate, like other affiliates as well, they still have to pay national ACB for part of from part of the right. membership dues. Right. So there's that. So I think um, at large chapters are good source for people who can't travel and who can't get somewhere. I was at, um, you know, <laughs> the, 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 I was somewhere and they were very enthusiastic about their statewide members. It's statewide. Like <laughs> it was very yep. enthusiastic. And I think that chapter maybe was bigger than others. And I just think the camaraderie is great for the whole state, like to be on Zoom and, and you could have events at different things. So like you could travel to, you could, do an event like if there's a member say like I know that you and I don't live close to each other Paul you live three hours away but you could host an event in your area for the members that are close to you and we can host another event down in Miami we could do an expo we can partner with things so sure. we're going to be virtual but we're going to do important um we're going to do Zoom things as well. And we really want to do blood drives. We, our heart <laughs> is big for one blood. Like we really want to save lives and do those kinds of things too. So for us as a not large chapter, we're doing that and we want to bridge, bridge the gap and build relationships. So, but I think at large members for those who, who can't get somewhere, I think it's important because they need that human interaction. Like I, you know, it saddens me to hear the Boston area for people like, you know, that everybody, like, I didn't know that most of the events are in Boston and there's people on the outskirts who can't get there for travel. That's really sad because the human element, I was starved for the human element of blindness because I've only been blind for three years. So, yeah, so I think the at-larges are important. Do any other members of our team have questions for these guys before you let them go? Miss mm -hmm. Marianne or, or Mr. Rick or, or Mr. Larry? I do not. Well, very good. So, you guys, thank you very much for telling us about what's going on in Florida. I think we're pretty excited about... Um, about um, all the stuff that you're doing. Uh, one of the things that amazes me is uh, here are these guys doing like four and five and sometimes six events a month, um, including, by the way, radio programs that, they, that they're 
that they're doing, which which you guys didn't talk about. So it's pretty amazing <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Thank yep, you, so Paul, thank, so thanks much. Thanks for being on. Yep. Yes. And um, just to let you know, a topic that I am very dear and close to my heart of mm -hmm. what we can do to save lives, of course, it would be an honor to come back and talk about blood donation, blood drives, and not only for humans, but our canines. Um, we'll have to talk about canine blood drives as well, because you can't yeah. use human bloods on our, on our guide dogs. No, no dog fusions. Dog fusion. Well, there's seven different types of dog um, types. So we have, you know, our human blood types, you know, A, B, A, B, negative, yep. O. Um, but in the doggy dog world, in the canine world, they have seven different blood types. See? And they're by breeds. Learn something every day. Did you know that, Brian? Did you know there were more blood types in dogs than there are in human? Uh oh. Oh. Guess Brian went away. <laughs> well, you guys, thank you, thank, Paul. Thank you very much. Yep. All right. So Ms. Margie had her hand raised for a long time and she lowered it. So I'm not sure if she decided uh, well, she didn't want to say what uh, she had Come to on, say. Margie. You can tell us about your topic. I'm presuming we may be talking about a lady in California. But we will see. Ms. Am Margie. I unmuted? Yes, you are. are. Oh, wow. Hey there. Well, I was getting noisy, so I took my hand down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cleaning up after some drywall work, and that's no mm -hmm. fun. Anyway, um, well, I'm glad to be back at Tuesday Topics. I'm usually not home, but thanks to a respiratory infection, I am. Um, you know, a hot topic to me. As some of you know, I used to work for the Department of Veterans Affairs. And um, I've been getting calls left and right recently regarding a new software that's being released that is totally inaccessible. I know three blind people, in manage, uh, two in management positions, one was a rehab teacher that has retired because they don't want to deal with this. Um, this is a main, uh, this was a contracted piece of software. Every clinician in the VA will have to use this. Um, but I want to make it bigger than the VA shortly. Um, our government continues to roll out, to contract, to develop software that is totally inaccessible. Who is the biggest employer of blind and visually impaired people? The government. Um, particularly Department of Veterans Affairs, Social Security, and IRS. More and more blind people are leaving those jobs every day. What are we doing about this? What are we actively doing? And I want to, so we don't get off on the wrong tangent, I want to say this has nothing to do with the resolution that did not pass. This is much bigger than that. And I, I think this is criminal that we as a community have not jumped in head and toe. Yes, the BVA is involved with CIRNA and um, that's the name of the software. Um, but let's not forget the people who are not part of the BVA that are civilian employees. And I just think we need to look at that across federal agencies. When we look at the unemployment rate, it's only gonna get higher. So uh, I, I think it's interesting um 
has the BVA done anything done anything that you're aware of um, in terms of um, commenting on on the new software? Um, what I know is secondary and is only secondary. The B, um, they annually they testify at Congress. This was part of their testimony. Right. Um, I don't know that they've done anything else myself. Um, I know they're mm -hmm. fully aware of this problem and they share the concerns because now we got a problem with access to medical records for blind vets. But I, I want to look at the employment side of it. And and we I I, I don't know if ACB's veterans group has um, has done much about it. I don't know if Tyson Ernst no. is is around, but um, he'd certainly be welcome to come on and talk a little bit about that. Um, I certainly haven't heard much about um, NFB's veterans group doing much about it. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not. I just haven't heard about it. Um, I, do you do you think this is a this is a five oh eight issue, Margie? The CERNA is specifically a five oh eight. Mr. Brian, you're back. Thank you. He came out of the yeah. Yeah. Somebody just tickled the bottoms of the soles of my feet and put a startlement <laughs> in my poor body here. Yeah. Oh goodness. Anyway, for what is worth. I, so I really, to answer your question, the CERNA thing yeah. is a 508 issue all the way. All the yeah. way. I don't. I can't speak for SSA and IRS, but Brian, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. The the joys. Uh, my my favorite hate and uh, entity is Social Security Administration. Always <laughs> has been from the first time I accepted a nickel from them. To when mm -hmm. I finally paid off everything, um, the joys of having to deal with overpayments you didn't ask for, mm -hmm. uh, paperwork that you send in and they can't find, so you get to go find it again. I mean, all of those kinds of things. So I, mm -hmm. I, I have to admit a certain lack of impartiality when it comes to those lovely things. So we, uh, we I, have in those agencies versus the other dysfunctions, employment of blind people and how it's getting less and less due to inaccessible software. We, oh, yes. we, oh, yeah. we, ha we have an opportunity um, to get in perhaps ahead of the game with regard to the IRS, which is probably now, um, if, if, if Veterans Affairs may be the highest, but I would venture to say that IRS is now the second highest because I think the numbers of people who have left social security who are blind are mm -hmm. huge. Um, and so I, I don't think they're nearly as large an employer. And that's, that's another whole question. Why are they not? But, um, but the point that I was going to make is the IRS has just gotten a huge um, bunch of money from uh, the federal government to update their software and move away from Windows NT, which is where they are now, um, to a more modern system. And I think that one of the things that we should probably do, and, and perhaps through 
through our employment committee and also through our government employees uh, group, I think um, we we ought to be putting IRS on notice now that yeah. we're watching them and that we expect that their that their software will be fully accessible. That's a good start. So yeah, it's so much easier to to build right. it in in the first place than mm-hmm. to bolt right. it on after the fact. What do you think we should do now, Margie? I think that ACB, regardless of any of its groups, um, government employees, veterans, or the veterans yep. group is is not quite there yet, um, and probably won't be for a long time. I think ACB needs to take a stand. I think ACB needs to write to the director of the Department of Veterans Affairs about this, and I think we need to demand that th- that this is halted. The rollout of this is halted. And from what I'm told, now I'm not a techie, you all know that. What I'm told, it was rolled out in a, we're called Visions Networks, are, and up in the Oregon, Washington area. And I was contacted by a blind person I've never talked to before. It's funny how people find me. Um, and um, she's been told they cannot roll it back into the the other bad program, CPRS. I don't know that that's true. I'm not technical enough, but I think we need to halt any further rollout until it is fully 508 compliant. So when you worked there, was was their system fully accessible? No, they rolled out CPRS, which was our, our, our um, patient care software, but the way around it is they still had Vista up, the very old software. Um, as they're rolling up Cerna, Vista and CPRS have gone away. Now, was Vista accessible? Uh, yes, very accessible. So we, we continue to stay, take steps backwards in, yeah. in the, the vision component of, of um, Veterans Affairs. Um, do you have any idea how many blind employees there are there? No, I don't. Not off the top of my head. I just know from when I left 13 years ago, there's a lot fewer. More and more have left. Um, I don't think at the present time there is a single blind employee. The last one just retired early um, in management in the Department of Veterans Affairs. And the sad thing is, and I get into the governmental politics, but Blind Rehab Service Headquarters is totally hands-off. They're, they're not taking a position on this, and um, I, I will get a little political. I think that's because we don't have a blind vet at the helm anymore, and we don't have a blind person at the helm anymore. We have a sighted person at the helm, and so they're totally hands-off. They don't want to take a position, but yet this is infe- affecting their employees and their role model employees for the blinded veterans and their blinded veterans opportunities for employment. Yeah, and and when you talk about headquarters, you're talking about headquarters of the BIS program. No, headquarters for blind rehab services in DC. Right, the Very one good. that we were going to have Charlie for. That was yep. so yeah, that would have been so awesome. It would. Um, yeah, we we would be in a much better direction today. But all three, you know, and there's other government agencies. I know a guy who just retired. Um, 
from NASA due to site loss and wasn't aware and DOR, Department of Rehab, couldn't help him. And he didn't know that he could get high security clearance. And I started talking to him about things, but it was too late. He already left. He already left. And this is a guy with a PhD. He's out on social security now. And he's 50 something years old. You know, we keep talking about the underemployment rate. What about the unemployment rate? Yeah, I mean, I, there, there, are, there are loads of people who end up having to, to, to lose their jobs because, because either systems are inaccessible or because they, they don't get the kind of, uh, of training or support. And I think it can, it can be some of both um, that, that enables accessibility to, created, to be created. I'll learn to talk. Um, so I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I'm passionate. <laughs> are you? I can tell. I can tell. Yeah. Are you? You know, one um, of the. Oh, go ahead, Paul. Have you have you talked to the the National Office of ACB about this issue, Margie? No, I have not. But they yeah. are fully aware of the issue. Um, I know that the gal I spoke to in Oregon has been in touch with Eric and Clark. Um, I helped, I, I, I did not edit. She sent the letter to me. I told her she should send it to her congressman. She should file a 508 complaint. And, um, you know, she, um, she can't go to the media, but she can do those two things. Um, so yes, the, na the national staff is fully aware of it. I don't know if anything, what we have done, it doesn't sound like we've done much, if anything. One of the um, one of one of the interesting developments is we 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 do appear to be getting um, some movement on a bill that will affect um, the the ADA, but that's not really helping much with the federal government. Right. So, um, but it's but it's interesting because what this bill calls for is exactly the kind of thing that that we are asking for within the federal system. Um, in in terms of uh, the requirements that are that are in this bill with regard to Title II of the ADA, right? So it'll be interesting. It, and I think our friend Sandra would back this statement. Is GSA? They just have a box checked. Are you you know you're going to be five hundred eight compliant? And I can tell you, the vendor says yes when they yeah. don't even know what it means. And right. then there's no checking once it comes back to, and I'm just using the VA as an example, because that's what I'm familiar with. There's no checking for that. They just roll it out. They assume it is. One of the things that I did, and I'll, I'll, I'll just mention it because mm -hmm. it may represent a solution that, that I think other people should try. When I worked for uh, Miami-Dade College, we entered into a lot of contracts for software developers and we ran into precisely what you're talking about. That is that, that under Title II, entities like Miami-Dade College are required to, uh, to, to purchase software that's accessible. And as you suggest, vendors would, it would claim that their stuff is accessible um, and, and therefore the college would buy it. Um, I actually made... Um, the college right into their contracts with vendors who are who are being contracted with that if in fact their stuff is is not accessible they would have to refund all their money and pay to get it fixed 
Um, and, um, and that actually appeared to make a big difference because that way people were not prepared to sign off. And the college wasn't either in danger of being sued by, uh, by disabled individuals because they had um, put software out there that simply wasn't usable. So, but well, that should be happening right now in government because it's it, violation it, of contract. It, it should be. Um, mm -hmm. it, unfortunately, um, it could happen in the colleges because of Title II of the ADA, right. but 508 just, just doesn't seem to have the same legs as other places do. Right. right. Brian, any other points uh, you'd like to make well, before we just, move on? Just the number one thing in any kind of accessibility thing. I fought with my town because they were supposed to put in curb cuts that were perpendicular to one another. And I went out to do an inspection as the local chair of the Commission on Disability and found that half of them were apex curb cuts. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Now, the law was very clear. The standards were very clear. But they said, well, there's not much we can do about it now. They're already in. And I said, oh, yes, there is. Um, <laughs> Because the vendor who did the work can only get paid the last of it when they sign off that they met the rules of a road reconstruction. And so mm -hmm. they were out with jackhammers, jackhammering those out and putting in apex ones and lost a significant amount of money in terms of labor and effort and the like. But it's all in the way you write procurement contracts. It, it is, yeah. and and it is and, all procurement, right? And and unfortunately, we're still not at a place where towns and cities recognize that they have obligations to people with disabilities, and where people with disabilities recognize that they can put pressure on those communities to actually do the right thing. Again, here in Watertown, the Commission on Disability is uh, responsible for putting a stamp of approval or disapproval on any request for a variance affecting accessibility of, of yeah. any permit. Nice. Any permit. Uh, now, mind you, uh, the system is not by any means perfect because mm -hmm. all it takes is a change in city staff for... <gasps> that to kind of slide to the wayside uh, because they claimed they were ignorant of that particular thing. You know, I love that phrase. Ignorance is, is uh, not a defender. How did that phrase go? Ignorance is no excuse when it comes yep. to the law. Yep. Uh, but boy, a lot of people get out of jail free cards on issues of accessibility. Yeah, but, but Brian, Watertown is as effective as it is because because you guys have a strong um, council of disabled people who advises Watertown that that disabled people are are sitting on. Is that not correct? Oh, absolutely. There we, it's a statewide law that any community can establish a commission on disability. And if they do so, it is uh, the handicapped parking violation tickets all that funds goes to the Commission on Disability for oh, them wow. to disperse, yeah. um, which is much more effective uh, in terms of impacting the lives of, of people with disabilities 
than having to go into the general fund uh, where you can come back and beg for it. Now it goes the other way around. Uh, the city occasionally comes to the Commission on Disability to say we have this activity that uh, we don't have money for, uh, but we, we've been asked to participate and the Commission may fund that. It might be an automatic door opener on the town library or for that matter, it might be the installation of uh, some special equipment at a city park uh, that would render it more accessible to the disabled community. So it works out well, but I tell you, you have to be on top of it. Yeah. The minute yeah. you take a nap, <laughs> the whole thing just goes to hell in a handbasket. Yep. Yep. Miss Margie, thank you very much for, for raising this topic. Do you have another one for us before we let you go? I just have one comment kind of along with what Brian's saying. I live in a town of about 91,000 people, and I'll tell everyone out here listening, the best thing you can do to serve yourself, whether you have a disability commission or not, because we don't, and we're not going to get one, um, is to get know who your head traffic engineer is, your head IT person, and your code enforcement. And you mm -hmm. could get a lot done in a city mm -hmm. by being a pain in the butt with them and making them enforce their codes and things. Thank you. Now, do you have a city council in, in your community, Margie? I do. I do. And, and have you ever appeared before them? Oh, yes, I have. I thought you might have. <laughs> I have on a number of occasions. I am happy to say that um, our immediate past mayor ended up walking my, I volunteered to walk my neighborhood with me to see all the low-hanging branches, and um, I've not had a problem since. Very cool. But, but you know, one of the things that we're demonstrating is that... Um, if the squeaky wheel um, actually manages to get some oil, otherwise, if you just sit sit back and complain, um, often you don't get very much done. That's right. In our community, the blindness community, among people with disabilities, has the lowest rate of filing complaints, yes. of going through the process of doing that kind of thing. Part of it, I think, is because the complaint process itself isn't all that accessible. But um, it's also that part of our compensatory skill building over time was, yeah, that wasn't accessible, but how can I get it done anyway? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's in the nature of, of how we've dealt with it, right? You know, if a website isn't accessible, you go and you look at the next one on your Google hit list. And the one after that, and the one after that. It's only and, when you and, get really frustrated with that that you actually go back and maybe file a complaint or uh, send an email off to the developer of that particular website, that kind of thing. But it's it, but it's interesting, Brian. I, I I'm dealing with a, a kind of an interesting issue now, and 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 it's one that we don't have any laws that will protect us um, for this, and that is. Um, I recently bought a, a new piece of equipment, and, and I guess the price of the equipment when it's at full price is about $4,300, $4,400. It is a mini note taker, um, and it's it, it came out, um, well, the mini version came out five months ago. Um, but what's interesting is that 
uh, I I just discovered um, once once I started to use it that there are an awful lot of web pages still um, that that can't be gotten, and this is supposed to be um, essentially a uh, a a compatible device that's as good as as virtually any other kind of relatively recent Android device. But in particular, um, I, I always lose the name of the, of the the particular kind of scripts that are that are used a lot on web pages. HTML, JavaScript. Oh, JavaScript. Ja- JavaScript. JavaScript is fully inaccessible, and mm-hmm. and that's very disheartening. But we but there's there is no law that protects us against people who are selling us equipment that that doesn't do what other devices will do because i'm prepared to bet you brian and i don't know what you think but i'm prepared to bet you that every android device that's being sold to the general public works with javascript oh without a doubt mm-hmm. without a doubt although in all honesty um as new sites are built they're becoming less and less dependent on that but they've got their own set of problems similar yep. to javascript yep. kinds of issues interesting miss marianne do we have anybody else hanging Mikey around he has his hand raised yep go for it hello sir hello how hello. are you Oh, I'm so happy I was able to come in. Tuesdays are normally bad for me. And then I heard my my friend Margie. Um, <laughs> and I, I I wanted to put a pin in something that Margie said because, it, you know, I don't think there's any coincidence in life. What I went through today just kind of had to piggyback on what Margie and I, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I was late to the call. So I don't know what else has been covered, but... Um, you know, I was at a meeting today uh, at a at a DBS office, mm-hmm. and stands for Division big, of Blind Services. Uh, correct. For those who are outside of Florida. yeah, and they were basically, you know, begging me with tooth and nail as a as a blind and visually impaired individual to go back into delivering employment services. Um, so one of the things that Margie says that a lot of the key players that we have had historically in different organizations who have who have walked in our shoes and understand our struggles and were blind themselves are being phased out, whether it be, you know, just because it's time for them to retire or some of these new advancements in technology. I know, Paul, you knew firsthand what I went through with the state of Florida yep. when they created an interim case management system for vocational rehabilitation and the first day that I got into it I was left with one inch of screen when I was using adaptive technology (laughs) Um, and I had to work a whole caseload with one inch of screen and their position was well it's a temporary fix the next one will be accessible and then instead of assuming the responsibility of fixing it they shifted me back over to rehab engineering on blind services side and had me work with them and figure out a workaround. Um, so I am, I wanted to, to let Margie know I'm, I'm experiencing the same thing out, out here on the East Coast and different entities where we have historically had some individuals who understood our struggles and were happy to carry the torch for us. Some of these new folks are, are, aware and and are happy to placate us by letting us know that we exist but not prepared 
um, to ensure that we have uh, full access to everything. And this is, we, I feel like we are going in the wrong way in a bunch of different directions. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned about blind individuals serving blind individuals. That was working really well. Um, but if we don't have that to rely on, it, it, it's a slippery slope that we are, we are well down now at this point. Yeah. I think you make a good point. It's one of the, one, one of the more interesting questions. Brian, do you think blind people are, are, are less likely to go into the public sector anymore? Less likely? Well, I wouldn't say less likely. Probably um, the whole world is less interested in touchy-feely kind of jobs, you know, jobs where it's people-oriented and more business-oriented and marketing-oriented and, and those types of things, just in general, the marketplace as a whole. Uh, our rehab agency had to drop uh, requirements for uh, rehab uh, teacher and rehab counselor master's degrees because nobody was applying. Yeah, and, it, and that's it, yeah, it's, it's happening so all over the would, country, I think. Yeah, it would reflect the same in the blindness community, I would think, that they've learned to some degree uh, through the rehab process how difficult it is to be a rehab counselor. Uh, Mikey, I also did a similar thing here in Massachusetts quite some time ago when the rehab agency decided that it needed to change its client management system. Um, and then they hired me to come take a look at how wonderfully accessible it was. And there was not a single process that a blind person could complete themselves. They oh, could do I bits mean, and pieces. But Brian, I was, I was gobsmacked. You know, so full disclosure, I was the sitting chair of the rehab council while this was going on. <laughs> and I had recently termed out and it was just in coming into the pandemic and they dropped this bomb on us that they had created a new end all be all temporary software until they got the other one. Um, and, it, and it was a hot mess. Uh, I was so embarrassed for my state. I was embarrassed for myself. My other question was, what are you doing with your with your visually impaired counselors in within the office? Like, how are, how are they working? Yes, exactly. Um, and, and we, this all happened without a conversation without, and they know better. <laughs> um, and I, I just think that there's, they're starting to feel that since there are not enough, you know, blind and visually impaired individuals with a voice within the organizations that they're going to get away with it. And, you know, mm -hmm. it goes a little bit to what Margie was saying. Uh, we are losing some of our, our pillar caps within these organizations that used to ensure compliance overall, right? So, you know, I, I feel that as blind individuals, we are good about carrying the torch across the gamut of disabilities. Unfortunately, yep. I don't feel the same way that other disabilities carry the torch for us. Um, that is my own personal opinion. Yeah. But well, I think there's some truth in that. <laughs> I think I think the ADA it has some things within it that prove that point. Uh, or I wouldn't have to ask a waitress to read me the menu, and that's considered an accommodation uh, to my needs for accessing what's available for sale in a restaurant. 
there's no way that uh, backdoor entrance for wheelchair users would have been allowed. So backdoor way of accessing a menu shouldn't have been allowed either. Anyway, um, I also think that we're seeing less and less people in leadership positions within rehab. Uh, and it, that yeah. has a direct, that is a direct result of how well they do uh, the earlier jobs and they're stunted by the software and the process. There are a number, there are a number of us who've been talking about that lately. Um, I, I, I would be interested in trying to explore at some point might be another topic. Why, why it is that, that, those doors appear to be closing. Um, you know, if we if we look at our state, Mikey, there there aren't a lot of blind people in in high level positions within, say, the Division of Blind Services. Well, I, I'm going to share with you a, an example that was presented to me uh, from the best of intention. So I will I'll set the scene for you and let you know that I was sitting in a blind services office with the entire staff. So all the way from district administrator for the area, supervisor, all the way down to the technicians. And, and I was the only visually impaired person in the room. Um, and, and they were telling me about a local CRP who has now decided to do job placement services. And they were struggling, you know, one of the, one of the individuals that they wanted my opinion on, on the overall case, right? Um, he was an engineer, uh, graduated, uh, worked as an engineer, visually impaired, and transitioned to this new area. And no assessment was done. And he is now needing, the individual is now needing some mental health because he's depressed because the job placement person put him to do laundry at a hotel. Oh my goodness. And because they didn't understand that he could be an engineer. Um, well, well, you're in the wrong. You're in the wrong profession, is what I told them. Um, you know, so this is this is what's happening when when people are are taking these, you know, touchy feely. I think it was Brian that said touchy feely um, these positions because they think they're going to help the you know the poor little blind person and they just need a job. Well, it's not just about a job; it's a job that they're going to be fruitful in and that they can do. Um, that is, that is not a correct approach, but. Here we have somebody serving an individual who, who probably has a higher level of education than the person serving him, uh, just on my assessment. And they, they, that's where they set the bar for a, for a graduated master's degree engineer who had been doing the job just because he's visually impaired. They thought it was perfectly appropriate for him to do laundry at a hotel. <laughs> Disheartening. Well, what am I supposed yes, to do with that? <laughs> yeah, well, I gotcha. I gotcha. And, and understand that there are a lot of people who are, this is going back to uh, some things said by Margie as well, and that is that um, I had a gentleman who was working at this um, attorney general's office here in Massachusetts, a state employee losing their vision gradually, who didn't want to disclose that he was losing his vision gradually over fear of being uh, disabled out of his job. Right. So we had to provide him services by him 
taking vacation time to come to the Carroll Center to teach them how to use technologies, but not the optimal situation because it would have been much better had we been able to teach him what he needed to know at his workplace, uh, where yep. the databases, yep. et cetera, et cetera, were available to him. But he was so afraid that he would be sidelined at best uh, mm -hmm. with that. And then another person working for the department, uh, well, motor vehicles division, uh, they provided him accommodation by assigning a full-time helper. Oh my. Wow. A full-time <laughs> helper. That is obscene. It is. Plain obscene. <laughs> though, though, it, though it happens more often than we'd think, I think. Well, I you know, and I believe in the idea of job sharing, where if I'm really good at this and this, but not so good at that and that, then let's job share and you do the parts of the job that you can do and I'll do the parts of the job that I can do. There needs to be more of that kind of engineering going Yeah, I mean, on I, I think that's fine. And I, and I certainly have no problem with that. But I, I'm talking about some people, particularly, I think, in federal agencies who... Um, who complain and end up getting somebody assigned as their reader virtually full time? Exactly. Yep. And what are they reading? They're reading the screen. Yeah. Yep. Mister Mister Mikey, thank you very much, sir. Thank you, guys. Have a good night. We appreciate Take care it. Now. Mm hmm. Miss Marion, anybody else? Larry has his hand raised. Hey, Larry. Well, good evening. Good evening to you all. Good evening. Uh, Mr. Johnson, how are you, sir? Thank you very much. I'm doing well, Paul. And I want to change topics. Good. That's perfectly okay. <laughs> we are less than a month away from November 8th, which means uh, we should be concerned about how to vote. Can we vote? Are there barriers to voting? still for people who are blind now i know there are a lot of barriers for uh, <clears throat> the mail-in ballot we're struggling with that one here in, in texas but uh, at the polling site do we have problems getting the assistance that we may need are the uh, audible uh, you know machines working uh, i came across something quite interesting and i'm wondering if any of you have heard of it it is called Election Protection. It's a project, and they have a website, and their website is basically a phone number, which is 866-OUR-VOTE. And their website is 866-OUR-VOTE.ORG. And I just came across this through, uh, accidentally, through an email from the Texas Civil Rights Project. And apparently, they, this is a national initiative, and uh, they have several hundred uh, sponsors. There are a lot of organizations that are faith-based or, or race-based. Um, I didn't see much in the area of disability base, but uh, they, they do have... Uh, the opportunity for you to call and they take the call anytime, eight to five, um, Monday through Friday. If you have a problem, 
with voting, you describe it to them, and then they will investigate it. And there has been actual a case here in San Antonio in, in 2020, where there was a violation of the uh, polling sites are supposed to have posted uh, signs giving instructions to persons who are disabled who can't go into the polling site and want to vote from the curb. And uh, they're supposed to have uh, signs at each polling site giving instructions how to contact the, the poll workers so they can come out and take the vote. Well, the county wasn't doing doing that. And so it was reported and eventually it it went to court and and they won the case. My point is that I don't know if we know about this, but it certainly is an opportunity for us to uh, take our issues uh, to this uh, monitoring location and see if some legal action can happen. Now you ask me, well, what kind of things can happen? Well, one of my friends told me of an experience. He went to a polling site and uh, the machines were not working and they didn't know how to make them work. And they had to call the uh, election county election manager who had to send somebody out to make the machines work. Then they weren't instructed as to how to assist him. Anyway, he spent like three hours at the polling site before he was able to vote. Last in the last primary here in my county, I went to my favorite polling site, and they've always been very accommodating and very helpful, but they had a whole new crew. And so after I signed the book, uh, I said, oh, can someone help me, uh, you know, over to the machine? And the, quote, election judge says, oh, no, we don't do that. Uh, what, what do you mean you don't do that? You've always done it. No, no, we're not trained into doing that. And I said, well, let me just take your arm. No, don't touch me, she said. I, okay, I won't touch you. So uh, I was flabbergasted because previously I'd never had that problem. Well, uh, so fortunately, one of my neighbors was there, and she said, well, I'll guide you over to the machine. And I said, okay, well, thank you. And so she did, and and then uh, I was able to, you know, to use it and, cast my vote and all. And, and this woman said, when you're finished, let me know, and I will assist you back to the, the door. And I said, well, what do I yell out? You know, whatever her name was, Mabel. And she says, no, 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 don't do that. You'll disturb everyone. Just raise your hand. I thought, are I in school or what is going on? <laughs> so it was a complete, completely lack of awareness training on her part. Well, of course, I reported her. And when I went back for the uh, for the follow-up uh, voting of the primary, she was no longer around. So that was good to know. But the point is, first of all, there are still problems for blind people when they go to vote at polling sites. And we need to know what to do about it. And my question really was, have you heard of this organization? Has anybody tried it? Uh, because I certainly am promoting it and plan to use it. And uh, I did call them and somebody did answer me. And I said, so is this where I 
tell my story? And they said, yes, absolutely. I said, okay. So the number again is 861-866. You had to put in the one. 1-866-OUR-VOTE, which is 687-8683. And it will be answered by a live person somewhere in the country, not necessarily in your own state. And they will take down the complaint and ostensibly follow up on it. So, Larry, I'm not going to quite let you get off the hook. What do you think we should do about, for instance, the, 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 the situation that happened to you? You followed up and filed a complaint. Or, or, or at least reported the incident. We don't necessarily have to call it filing a complaint, and and the person wasn't there, um, wasn't there when you next, next went. I right. think that's fine. But what else should we do? Well, uh, you know, when I was more active uh, in our local chapter, what we did is we offered to the election manager some sensitivity and awareness training to all of the people they plan to place at the polls. And uh, she was very supportive of that. And in fact, we did do that. We, we gave a presentation to the officials who would be uh, manning the polling sites. Right. So I think that's something that we definitely can offer to do. Brian, and any in fact, thoughts? That's what we do here in, mm -hmm. <laughs> even holds water down. We uh, have a good relationship with uh, local election official and we make a real point of training as a part of any poll workers uh, acceptance uh, into the program for providing that service one of the other thing larry you were talking about was the machines themselves you know we've advocated strong and hard for accessible voting machines however the money that was used to buy those machines was yesterday's money and now we're faced with those machines are not just obsolete, they're broken down in mm -hmm. many cases. Yeah. And the poll worker packed it up uh, and didn't report that it was broken until the next election when the new poll worker opens it up and finds out it's missing a plug or the jack where the keypad plugs into the machine isn't working. Uh, it, it's not logged well. So we're going through that with our. Um, elections division statewide and you know there's a, a number of different companies who are promoting devices that are supposed to be the next generation devices mm -hmm. but it's driven by dollars and cents yeah we just got the driven new, by accessibility we just got the new uh models in brian and uh nobody made an effort to uh, acquaint uh, the blindness community with the new set of controls, which are easy enough to use once you realize that they're different from the old one. But another issue is the headphones. Uh, often we found that the headphones are not working. So you kind of almost want to make sure you bring along your own headphone. <laughs> And that's, that's what we urge our members to do here. And now we have, of course, you had mentioned the uh, absentee or electronic voting process. And this is one of those things that you're going to have a bit of a problem when you take a low incident population, blindness, 
and you want the system to both uh, allow you to vote remotely and to vote at the poll. When COVID uh, is a little more over than I feel it is today, I will be going back to my polling place rather than doing accessible online voting um, because I want my neighbors to see me there. I want them to remember that the blind guy at 57 Grandview Avenue is a participant in the community as a whole. Uh, and and you, you teach by example, right? But people will do the thing that is easiest. And easiest is what you could do in your living room. Look what's happened to movie theaters now that in our living rooms we can have anything on demand. It, it's it, dramatically it, affected things. But there are all kinds of reasons why it was so, and I'll, and I'll shut up in a second, Larry. There are all kinds of reasons why it was it, it was so, but one of the issues that we're facing in Florida is in in trying to implement this vote by mail accessibility. We have a report that says that in the five counties where it was implemented in the last general election, a total of seven people use the system in all of the five counties. And they're saying, why should we be spending money um, when folks aren't aren't doing this? And the same thing is true, by the way, of, uh, of, of voting machines. The, the proportion of disabled people who come out to utilize these machines is minuscule. I mean, it is tiny. But anyway, Larry, you were going to say. Well, let me answer those two points, first of all. Uh, the current uh, situation in Texas is that there is electronic voting by mail for military stationed abroad. Yeah, everywhere. I mean, it's true in Florida as well. So And in Massachusetts. Uh, so that system is being used. So the, the, the question that we've asked is why can't you make that system available to blind voters who want to vote electronically by mail, at least receive their vote, their ballot electronically and then process it and then mail it in. That's that's the process that the military use. And we're simply asking for the same process. So it really you're not talking about just doing something for three or four people. You're doing it already for the military. So you're just opening it up a little more and adding additional people in. Well, the the the. The difference is I, that the the votes for the for the military in most states are <clears throat> are receive and return, whereas our our accessible mail ballots are 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 not returnable remotely. In Massachusetts, they are, but that Excellent. is very recent, very recent activity. Our legislature allowed it for one election, and now they finally allowed it for the next three years. So, um, with respect to nonetheless, the when you look at that, when you look at those kinds of problems, though, Larry, don't you think that uh, when we keep fighting for something based on numbers, we're ignoring the fact that it's a civil right? It's exactly. a right as a U.S. citizen to do this. It doesn't matter whether it's one person who's denied. Uh, 
for that kind of a, a, a process. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Brian. And and with regard to the uh, machines, the way that those machines work is that they enter a, a put in a cartridge, and that cartridge is what converts that machine into being an an audible uh, output machine. But so they can just drop that cartridge in or not put it in as the case may be. So the the machine is still the machine. It's still the same machine that is used by the sighted person. Gotcha. Interesting. Yes. Yes. This is Marianne here. One of the things that we do every single year um, is to invite um, the supervisor of elections to our meeting and have them bring a machine. The Center for Independent Living also does it, and I think the Lighthouse does it as well. But that's nothing big. But what we make them do is give us a telephone number, and and they do it. They give us their um, office number and a cell number in case we're at the poll and something goes wrong. And um, and we did also do the sensitivity training. But we we worked very hard um, way back in 2016 to develop a good relationship with the supervisor of elections. And they have... Um, that is one of the things that they do to accommodate us to say, hey, you know, if you're at the polls, absolutely call us if you're having a difficult time. And I guess my question back to my earlier comment is, is there a value in our trying to make use of this election protection monitoring service? Is there a value in our becoming part of that network to I, I don't it helps i don't know this particular one i know that our national office puts out a number uh every every election for for registering concerns or complaints um that that is reasonably widely circulated but 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 i think you've convinced me larry that that it might be a good idea for us <clears throat> to consider um, voting as our next Tuesday topics, at least for, for part of the time. So what do you think, Brian? Should we do that? Oh, I ab- absolutely think that it would be very appropriate. Yeah. Right. You and know, I'll, when, I'll see if I can you, get someone at- from ACB National um, to join us to talk about issues that they'd like to raise and what they're going to do. You know, on go ahead, issue, Brian. On that issue no, of I voting, think- on that issue of voting, uh, I don't know what the percentages are in Florida or in Massachusetts. But I know in the midterm elections in Texas, typically there's maybe 34 to 35 percent of registered voters vote. It'll be the same here. Which means that 18 percent of the voters who are registered to vote are actually deciding who is going to serve as your elected representative. And so the interesting challenge here is, even though we're a small percentage, if blind, visually impaired people and their families and friends were really, really aggressive in turning out to vote, they might be able to tilt some of the results significantly. It's an interesting point, Larry. Brian, you were going to say? Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, as we talked about other things, it's not just putting something in place, it's maintaining it. 
And if you want it maintained, you have to monitor it. So, Larry, I really appreciate you being concerned and bringing to our attention this means of doing that monitoring. We have 365 cities and towns in Massachusetts, and each one has their own election official. Mm -hmm. So then you add how many polling places that means. To monitor them is very, very difficult. Uh, so if we can get our members, when they go to the polling place, to report back in some fashion uh, what their experience was, I think that could be really, really useful information. We, we've done that before on Tuesday Topics, but that's one eight six six hour vote Mr. Larry. Is that right? Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Yep. Thank, Thank you. you. Miss Marion, anybody else? Melody has her hand raised again. Disheartening. <coughs> <coughs> so. Oh, she went away. She's not there any longer. Ah, okay. And there are no other hands raised. Very good. So one of the things that we were talking about earlier, I, I want to go back to a little bit because I, I, I kind of said that I would, and, and that was to, one, one of the things that having statewide at-large chapters and having nationwide at-large members means that we're actually having an impact, or at least I think we are, on, on two groups, on local chapters and on state affiliates. Um, Brian, do you, do you see any, any direct impact uh, from, for some of these developments on, on, well, let's take state affiliates first? Certainly, certainly. One of the, and, and there is this internal, you know, uh, talking back and forth, you know, off the record kind of thing about the future of ACB. Is it mm -hmm. in affiliates or is it in members at large? Now, I happen to think it doesn't have to be one or the other. Uh, one acts kind of as a patch to the other. Mm -hmm. If a state is really struggling in terms of uh, its management and the like, then rather than all the people in that uh, state being disenfranchised simply because of the instability of the state affiliate have another way of being involved with the national organization. So I think it does serve that purpose. I do, however, think that it makes it harder on those state affiliates to engage people in local activities. And I, I live in the district that Tip O'Neill used to represent. Uh, and he had that famous phrase that all politics is local. When you want to talk about audible traffic signals, detectable warnings, um, uh, access to your li public library, to your public parks, to your street construction going on, you know, the list goes on and on. That's all very local. And I worry that we will become a national organization rather than a confederation, if you will, of uh, more local organizations. 
if we are not careful in how we manage it. I, I don't think we shouldn't do it, but I do think we have to manage it in a way we're not used to. Yep. I, I, I think it's interesting. So state affiliates are, are one issue. Are, are, are we impacting state affiliates with national at-large membership? The answer is yes, to some degree, because um, when we were talking earlier, if somebody doesn't want to be part of their local chapter or doesn't want to be part of their state affiliate, um, then they could join national. That's fine yep. and good. But what that means is the reason that they don't want to be a member of the chapter or don't want to be a member of the state affiliate, um, those entities will lose uh, a person who has a different opinion. Um, you know, we'll end up having uh, chapters that are all bosom buddy pals rather than a mix of people who have differing opinions and have learned to interact with one another um, and work with one another through that instead of taking my marbles and going home. That applies both to the chapter and to the state affiliate. We've had some affiliates that are states where we had two different affiliates, Virginia, Kentucky, California, uh, Hawaii, for example. And I think that, uh, again, all of these except Kentucky at this point have evolved, some might say devolved, into a single affiliate state. But I think that that forced them to broaden their views and learn to compromise in ways that if we only hear from people we agree with, we're not going to grow very much. Yeah, I think those I think those are very good points, um, Mr. Brian. But another area that we said we would at least look at a little bit, and it might be the last thing that we'll that we'll talk about, have to do with in person, hybrid, and um, and uh, remote meetings, and and what the impact of each of those is. I I, I attended a meeting of a statewide organization this weekend that only had their meeting available in person. Um, it, and uh, I, I, I found it interesting that they did things that way. They didn't, they didn't, they had thought about streaming their meeting, but it didn't happen. Um, but, but there was, there was a lot of enthusiasm and, and a lot of interaction uh, that was involved in 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 having you know 150 people or so, uh, mostly blind people together um, in one spot. Um, it, I think there are a couple of our affiliates who have decided to only hold their conventions in person. Um, what do we think about that? Is are are in person conventions a, a, a good thing, especially if in person is all you're doing? Well, I I think that um, putting feathers back in the pillow is not going to mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. There is an expectation now that people 
can see how they might participate even if they do not have the means, whether it be financial or logistical, to be able to attend a face-to-face -face meeting, that they're still involved. Our rehab council here has 12 members and during their meetings pre-virtual, they might have one outside person attend that's not a member. Yep. Now they have twice as many attending as those present. And I'm talking about people who aren't a member of the council. They're taking the time to be there. The mm -hmm. statutory advisory board, which is a much narrower group, only five individuals, um, have been forced to put onto their agenda because of virtual attendance. Uh, time for that group to hear from the blindness community in a way that simply didn't happen. The meetings held were held in the commissioner's office around mm -hmm. his little conference table. And now they have to accommodate uh, and deal with uh, opinions of the people that they serve. So I think there's real value in that regard. And I, want, I wouldn't want to give that up uh, by going entirely face-to-face. Uh, -face. But, but let me tell you, there is, it is going to require that same level of interest in how to manage it for us to do what I think is pretty much inevitable, and that's hybrid uh, conferences for those who can't get there to be not disenfranchised by their wallet or their distance. Uh, and, you know, a lot of these people um, can tilt things pretty dramatically. If we have twice as many people participating, that means that ha that than we did last year, then whatever you expected the process to look like, the outcomes to be, you can't gauge it on what happened last year or the year before. How many people are going to vote? How many rooms do you need in the hotel? Yeah, uh, you know, just there's, there's no numbers to go by. But the but and that in a sense is the other side of the coin. You know, some of the states that are holding only in-person meetings say that they very much fear that if they decide to go hybrid, they they will they will end up costing their state affiliate money because they won't be able to meet their contract. That is absolutely correct. That's no question about it. No yep. question about it. And this is a transition issue. This is not a, uh, in my opinion, at least a, a something we should expect to still be true five years from now. We'll have oh, some I, history. And I, I, I think I don't that, that will matter. I don't know that I agree with that, Brian. What, what, what is your, when you say it, you're saying we'll have history so we'll know what the impact will be? We will, the system in general, hotels, um, what, whatever places that you're holding your face-to-face -face meetings at are having to change their business models as well. Um, and as we learn, I, I go back to the year that um, I was elected president of the Bay State Council of the Blind for the first time. And I was really concerned because a large number of our members simply didn't have the finances to pay for two nights hotel and hotel costs food wise. So I worked with my board to condense our two day event into a one day event. 
that started and stopped in such a way that people could get there. Um, a reasonable percentage of our membership could get there and get home uh, in one day. The next year, the membership uh, said, no more of this nonsense. This is going to be a two-day convention, not because we are worried about um, or worried that somebody took this away from us, is that we miss so much the socialization that only comes with a multiple-day convention. Uh, we, we were told, stop having speakers during lunch. That's when we get to talk to one another. So I think that we will, over a, a fairly reasonable length of time, learn to balance these two things. Uh, I think we saw at the convention this year, the national convention, problems relative to equal access to opportunities to speak on issues. Uh, equal access, if you will, to campaigning for elective office. Um, and those are the official things, not the, if you will, the social things, but it's also part of things. So I, I think don't think that we're ever going to be able to turn back the hands of time. No, I don't. Th I I don't think we are. But I guess I, I guess my concern is once we've turned the hands of time to where we are now, that that we may have also um, signed what amounts to a death knell uh, for in-person conventions down the road, um, because it seems to me that that there is less and less incentive for people to come to in-person conventions. Um, so, Marianne, you guys are doing your Pennsylvania convention coming up pretty soon. It's all virtual again this year. Yeah. Um, our hope is, I mean, we talk about, you know, a day when we can all meet in person again, and I, I'm an advocate for in-person. I don't think that um, <clears throat> anything is the same um, virtually, we do a, a fantastic conference, and I enjoy it every year. But it's not the same as being in person. But again, our fear is is the numbers. We don't have a very we don't have a very large affiliate, and so far, um, hotels have not um, recognized that there needs to be a new model. And so, our yeah. contract, if we were to go um, in, if we were to do an in person at the hotel that we did in nineteen, that we used in nineteen, they would expect the same food and beverage contract that that we had back then. And and you know we have that same fear that that's just not going to happen. And 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 that's been our experience in Florida as well, Brian. That that even though you think hotels ought to recognize that there's a new model, we haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, what we've seen is is they're making it much harder to get good contracts by charging higher rates and requiring higher beverage stuff. Right. Um, simply, simply because of the fact that their profit margins that they could expect from walk-ins and from other folks who they thought were coming to their hotels just aren't happening. So they're so they're making us pay more of their bottom line. Well, I fully agree with you, especially on the food prices. They are just astronomical for what they're uh, providing. Providing just mm -hmm. just yeah. absolutely astounding. You know, twenty dollars for a bag of potato chips for God's sake. That is just ridiculous. So, but but nonetheless. 
one of the things that we did with our uh not our state convention yet because we've yet to have uh our first hybrid convention that will be uh in the spring but when you go to our national conventions we probably um should not have in retrospect not have gone so many years forward in signing contracts because they were based on the old way that things were done so we are stuck with high room requirements we are stuck with uh limited um availability of food we even go to conventions where you know six months before there was a food court we get there now and the food court's been shut down i, I remember that's what happened in uh, st louis st louis not? it is what happened yep yeah so there are those kinds of things that are happening i would expect that we won't see uh conventions the face-to-face -face part of a convention recovering to the size they used to be but what that will also do and i'm trying to be an optimist here you you guys i truly am but what we ought to be able to take advantage of is we can now go to hotels that aren't so massive that aren't connected to a convention center uh and all the uh costs associated with those extras in things we may even be able to go to non-major cities uh because we're not looking for hotels that'll uh accommodate thousands well you may not be looking for that but you're the trouble with non-major cities is that there's no way for blind people to get there well um, no no i'm talking about places like oh i'll, I'll i consider columbus a nice city but it's not a major one it's not chicago it's not uh miami you know it's, yeah. it's uh, i think it's, it's a pretty i think it's a pretty major city but but anyway i i i i guess i was thinking more one of the things that we're finding is that um uh, a lot of the traditional ways that people have traveled um, within a state to do, say, a state convention are being closed off by, by transportation changes. There are virtually no intercity buses left um, that, that go to most of the smaller cities in the state of Florida. They're cutting They're, them all the time. We just right. heard uh, Fort Myers no longer goes to um, uh, Tampa, not Tampa. Yeah, St. Pete. They cut a Fort Myers run from Greyhound. Right. The same thing is the same thing's Constant. happening with train service. Um, you know, and after the after the storm, for example, they 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 are still not running trains south of Orlando. So, I mean, the 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 whole transit thing is another thing that's making in person conventions very difficult. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so what could we do different at one of those conventions? Again, one of the things I complained about during our national you have convention 30 seconds, is the right. desire, the desire somehow or other to do it the same way, to yeah. cover the same issues, all of that kind of thing. We really need to sit down and redefine what a national convention should be, what a state convention should be. We're talking for our spring convention here in Massachusetts about dividing it. 
we may not have three consecutive days, but three days that happen on consecutive weekends so that we can have some things face-to-face and other things entirely virtual. Interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning into this potpourri. Next week, we're going to talk about elections. We appreciate you. You make us what we are. And good night.